Well, good morning. It is, it is a pleasure to be able to share and to worship with you today. This morning we wrap up our series on convergence. The idea of coming together from different places, from different perspectives, from, from our own perspectives, and becoming one. Becoming the body of Christ that we have been called to be through Jesus the Son. Over these last weeks, we have, have talked about how do we converge? How does such a, a diverse body of people converge to find unity of, of purpose and of life together? We started by talking about converging through purpose. In looking at the Great Commission in Matthew 28, we, we talked about that we are called to converge upon the purpose of making disciples, of, of being disciples together. Disciples of Jesus Christ. We talked about converging through devotion. Our primary loyalty and devotion being to Christ Himself as Lord and Savior. But then because of connecting with each other through Christ in the church, that, that we're to practice and to experience a devotion and a loyalty to one another. We talked about converging through imitation, of imitating God, of imitating Christ the Son, even if we dare, of imitating each other as we walk in the faith. We looked at Paul as he challenged those that, that he had won to know Christ as Lord and Savior to imitate Him as they would be growing in their faith, recognizing that this is not a statement of pride, but, but out of humility as, as I seek to follow Christ, as I seek to make Him Lord of my life, maybe as I journey a little further down the road than you have, maybe my imitation, maybe my example can be something to encourage you. We talked about how corporately as churches that, that we can imitate and encourage each other as we live out our witness in the unique communities in which we live. Last week, we talked about converging together by practicing, by practicing together Living out our faith together by doing and obeying and exercising what Christ has commanded us to do. And this morning we try to put all these things together. I'm reminded of a story. It's a story that's told by uh, an author named Ron Mail, who wrote the Tender, T-E-N, parentheses, D-E-R, the Tender Commandments. He tells the story of a of a, a father and son. A father who had been widowed for some time, raising his son and his son, and, and he shared a, an interest in, in paintings, in fine art. In fact, they had, had literally traveled the world and collected masterpieces of some of the most and well-known artists of all times and, and had one of the most prized collections of, of any individual person. And this is something that the father and the son shared together with over those early years of this son's life into adulthood. But as you're aware, in, in Europe during the 20th century, there were uh, two significant world wars. There were wars in different places. And sure enough, this father and his son lived in one of those times. And the son was called away to serve in the military. And one day, this father received word that his son, while uh, trying to save someone's life, had been very gravely injured. 
And the father sat praying and wondering where and, and what was going to happen to his son. And sure enough, after a few days, a week or so, the father got that telegram that all parents dread when their children are serving in the military that his son had passed away, had been killed by these wounds that he had received in saving the life of someone else. And sure enough, as he began to hear stories and letters from some of the, the young men that his son had served with, they told similar stories of how brave his son was and how he had even saved other lives beside this one life that ultimately cost him his. Yet the father was alone. And as he would sit alone in his house at night, as he would, would stare at these paintings that were hung all over the house, these masterpieces that were desired by art museums, by collectors around the world, and, and as he began to watch those, look at those paintings, uh, over time they began to be so associated with his son that he began to, be, to not enjoy those paintings, began to be turned off by those paintings and, and to not appreciate them because of the connection with his son. And he was sitting at home one Christmas morning when a knock on the door came. He opened the door and there was a young man, a fellow soldier who had a package with him and he came into the house and, and began to talk with the father and he said, you know, I'm the young man your son saved. And as he was saving me is when he was, received his wound that ultimately killed him. He said, your son and I used to talk about the, his appreciation of art and the masterpieces that you all had collected and, and how significant your relationship was. And, and he took this, this gift and he gave it to the Father and he said, you know, he said, I, I'm certainly not a, an accomplished artist, but I enjoy painting. And the Father took that gift and he unwrapped it and it was a portrait of his son that this man had painted. And he brought it to give to the Father. And certainly the, the artist wasn't as accomplished as these masterful artists of pictures that hung all around the wall, but, but the father noticed that the artist, that this young man had captured the essence, the personality, the gleam in his son's eye. And so he replaced, and he put this painting of his son over a fireplace. And over a period of time, he began to soften. He began to appreciate his son as the father continued to grow old, and within, literally within the, the next year, passed away. That painting had brought some healing. He began to enjoy those other masterpieces and paintings that his son and he had enjoyed because of the, the portrait of the son that hung over the fireplace. Well, certainly as this man's heirs were, 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 were there were none, there was an estate auction. And word got out about this auction that was being held with all these masterpieces that were going to be sold. And some of the representatives from the greatest museums came to, his, to this place, to the estate for the auction. Wealthy individuals who wanted to see their own personal art galleries enhanced knew that they could come and they could receive and they could increase their standing. So they gathered around the auctioneer and the first painting out was the picture of the sun. And the auctioneer said, by the will of the estate, this is the first picture that must be sold. 
And all of these art experts gathered around. They began to mumble to themselves about how could, how could we bid on a painting that has such less quality than this? The auctioneer said, well, who'll give me $100? And everyone just kind of looked at each other. The mumbling began to, to continue to grow and, and people were dissatisfied. We need to get this over with so we can get on with the real auction and get rid of the real paintings. And finally... A voice from the back said, I'll give you $10. It's a voice of a, a, a countryman that lived next to the owner. He said, I, I knew the son. And he was a good boy. He said, I, I've only got $10. I'll, I'll take the picture. And everyone kind of took a breath, a sigh of relief and the auctioneer looked around to see if anyone was going to increase the bid, and, and sure enough, they didn't. And so, on the count of three, the auctioneer pounded the, his gavel and said, sold for $10. And the auctioneer began to collect his things and put things up, began to walk off the platform. And those who had come to gather to bid on the other paintings began to grumble and began to protest and began to say, wait a minute, we, we've got to auction off the rest of the pictures. And the auctioneer looked out and he said, according to the Father, whoever gets the Son gets all the paintings. As we talk about converging, as we talk about all these different ways that we can come together, too often we get so focused, if you would, on the masterpieces, on the programs, on the events, on the ministries, that we lose sight of the Son. You see, if we'll converge as a church towards the Son, then all these things... All these things that we desire as a, a community of faith. All the, 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 the things that God desires us to accomplish as His people. All these things will take care of themselves. If we'll converge. And if we'll converge first and foremost through a love of God. Through a love of the Son. Then we will learn and we will discover and we will grow and mature in our love for each other. And as we mature in our love for God and our love for each other, there's nothing that God would assign us and, and command us and give us opportunity to do that we cannot accomplish. But we must converge first and foremost through our love of God and His Son. 1 Corinthians 13, the Scripture simply says that without love, without love, even though we speak eloquently, even though we speak with the voices of angels, without love, we're like a clanging cymbal. Christopher, I could ask you, Christopher, step down, but anyway, imagine the cymbal going off, right? He's down here. How many times when we stand up and try to sing and speak so eloquently that without love we just become someone clanging on cymbals? Paul says, 
even if we know all things, even if we have all faith, even if we are able to see miracles happen, but we don't have love, guess what? We're nothing. He says, even though we give generously, even though we would sacrifice our own bodies without love, it profits us nothing. You see, it's quite simple. Yet at the same time, it's also profound. God is love. 1 John 4, 8. Maybe one of John's greatest contributions in his letters is just simply to state the obvious. God is love. Okay, so, so what is love? Because as we're all aware, love is one of the most misused and abused words in the English language. We, we confuse love with lust. We confuse love with, at times with our own selfishness. We confuse love with want. So what is love? Well, God created love. I think God created all forms of love. I, I think, as we've talked about from the pulpit before and in your own Bible study classes, C.S. Lewis does a great job of identifying four primary loves. He talks about a, a love of affection, a love that, that, that comes from family. We, we love our kids because they're our kids. We love our, our parents because they're our parents. We, we love our family because they're family. There, there's an affection that we have. We, we love people that we, that we work with, that we relate with. We have an affection for them. We love people we come to church with. We have an affection for them. This, this is given by God. There, there's another kind of love. A, a brotherly love. A love of friendship. That we choose, we, we invest, we get to know people and, and we make the choice. I want to be your friend and, and we enter into that love relationship. A brotherly kind of love. God invented that kind of love. There's, there's eros. A romantic love. God, God created that. But as we know and as we understand the workings of love, we see that this world has, has corrupted all of these kinds of love. The world has made all of these love, again, conditional kinds of love and, and selfish kinds of love. But when John says God is love, he's introducing us, he's teaching us, he's telling us about a, a new kind of love. An agape love. A love that is sacrificial a love that is unconditional, a love that is selfless, a love that puts others first. It's a love of service. This is what John means. This is what Paul means when they talk about this kind of love that God is. Agape, by definition, even though God created all these different kinds of love, agape, by definition, is the one love that, that can't be perverted or manipulated or polluted by us. For you see, agape love is that love which is initiated from God, is that love that only passes through us as we experience God and His love. God is love. And then in 1 John 4.19, 
he continues with this revelational, revolutionary kind of news. He says, we love, we experience agape because God, because He first loved and agape us. It's a love of relationship with God that, that comes into our lives and is shared with others. Karl Barth, one of the most famous Swiss and German theologians of the 20th century, in his last lecture, one of his last lectures at the University of Chicago, Bart was gaining on in years. He was, he was not well. In this particular occasion, he was tired. He was not feeling good. And after his lecture, instead of allowing the class to ask questions, the moderator of the lecture said, Dr. Barth, if you wouldn't mind, let me ask you a question on behalf of all of our class. And the moderator stepped back and he said, Dr. Bart, and Dr. Bart, some of you may have read some of his stuff. It's very, very dense. He's written thousands of pages of theological insight and, and, and thoughts and ideas. One of the most brilliant men of the 20th century theologically. He said, Dr. Bart, what is the greatest theological insight that you have ever considered? Just a little question. <laughs> Dr. Bart, what is the greatest theological insight you've ever considered? Bart sat back in his chair, thought about it for a few minutes, and then he looked out at, the, at his students and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I think he's right. The greatest theological truth that we can ever begin to wrap our, our, our minds and our lives around is that God is love and that God has chosen not just to create us, but through His, His infinite love, His sacrificial love, His unconditional love, He has decided to redeem us and to give us life anew and afresh. God is love. And because we experience His love, we can now begin to love and share this kind of love with others. Paul picks up on this idea of love in 1 Corinthians 13. The beautiful love chapter that we referred to earlier, the first three verses earlier. And notice and listen to this theological truth that Paul concludes this middle part of this section where he describes love. He said, love, in verse 7, bears all things. He said, love believes all things. He said, hope, love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. God is love. Love never fails. God never fails. What, what does this mean? What does it mean that, that love doesn't fail? What does it mean that God never fails? Because the truth is, as we look around our world, and certainly with the events of the last days, we don't have to look far beyond our, to, to the, across the oceans. Things taking place just in our own neighborhoods, in our own places of work, 
that cause us to, to doubt and to ask, what is going on here? God, where are you? I, I, I didn't think you ever failed, God. You see, the reality of the world in which we live is that it doesn't always appear to our eyes that God or that love is winning. Evil and hatred are, are powerful entities in our world. And while they never win the war, they're battles that, that evil and that hatred win. But to say that love never fails means that God is always present. God is always loving. God is always at work. God is always redeeming. God is always bringing death, excuse me, bringing life from death and from evil. This is the promise of Scripture. Romans 8, verses 38 and 39. Paul writes, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor anything, any other thing created, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Through Christ, we know, we've been promised, that we'll never be separated from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. God's love will never fail us. Therefore, we know God will never fail us. And even though we don't understand, even though we can't see and, and explain what's going on around us, we can by faith, we can have confidence in that which we do not see. And that is that God is at work loving and redeeming every situation. John chapter 13 is one of my favorite chapters. It's the night in which Jesus was to be betrayed and, and He gathered His disciples to share the, the Passover meal that evening. And they all understood, they all knew that before they could partake of the Passover, that, that, that they had to be cleansed, they had to be ceremonially and ritually cleaned. Their feet had to be washed. And yet they also knew that none of them were going to do that. And in the midst of their conversation, in the midst of their wondering, wondering who was going to, to perform this, this cleansing, this ritual, Jesus got up from the table. And he took a basin and he went around and began to wash the feet of the disciples. And even amidst their protests, he said, no, you don't understand. I must cleanse you. I must wash your feet. I must serve you. And after this story, as the disciples are still trying to understand, as they're still trying to comprehend what they've experienced Jesus says this in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You see, this kind of agape love, this kind of love that we talk about in Scripture, that John and that Paul continue to reinforce and teach us about, this kind of love is what sets us apart, is what sets His disciples apart from 
all other people, from all other groups. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. Love one another as I've loved you. I've, I've washed your feet. I've, I've ministered to you. I've nurtured you. Love each other in this way. Because here's the key. Because those people around you are going to know that you are my disciples. That you're my followers. By the way that you treat each other. By the way that you love each other. By the way that you care for each other. And nurture each other. And churches, we talk about converging together as, as the body of Christ that He's called us to be. Our first devotion must be our devotion to Christ. And then out of that, as we experience God's love, as that love transforms us, it is to be lived out in community, together with each other. So that as we love each other, it makes such an impression, not just upon the body, but upon those outside those that are not part of the community of faith, that they look upon the, the faith community, they look upon the churches and they say, wow, look at the way they love and nurture and care for each other. They must be followers of Jesus. They're practicing. They're living it out each and every day. I've shared this story with you before, but I think it's been a couple of years. One of the most powerful examples of, of, of this experience of, of love was, was on a mission trip. Why? took a group of teenagers to Mexico for a spring break mission trip. And we had gone to a, a, a First Baptist church of, of, uh, in Mexico, a little church in a, in a city. There was a, a parsonage there. There was a part of the church that uh, the, the pastor's family had taken over and then there was some, some space, some classrooms where we were able to sleep and, and, and to take care of our needs during the week and to, to, to live. And we got there, and these were just old classrooms. The, the chairs were in the classrooms were broken down and, and, and were in, in bad condition. But there were beds in, in each one of the rooms. And by our standards, these beds were, were, the mattresses were very worn out, were at times even uncomfortable. But there they were. And so we kind of teased each other throughout the week about the beds that we were sleeping on, and, and certainly grateful we weren't sleeping on the floor. And then on the, the last morning, as we were gathering our things, the pastor and his family came down to claim their beds and took them back up to their rooms. You see, they had been sleeping on the floor all week so that we could sleep in their beds. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples when we learn to love each other unconditionally, when we learn to sacrifice, when we learn to give up what is comfort and what is, is needed for us, and we learn to share it and to give it to others to meet their needs, the world around us will go, wow. There's something different. There's something unique about this people. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 5 are, are the heart of this Beautiful Corinthian passage that describes agape love. In verses 4 and 5, li listen to these words. Listen to how radical. Listen to how, how revolutionary. Listen to how different this kind of love is. And even today, when we use the word love, are, are these the things that we're thinking of? Are these the things that we're practicing? 
Paul writes, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. It is not provoked. And love does not take into account a wrong suffered. You see, this is the kind of community that we are to share together as a people of God. As a people called First Baptist Church of Norman, Oklahoma. Kindness, patience, not being jealous. And when I see that word jealous, I think of Philippians chapter 2 when it says that Jesus wasn't jealous and He let go. He didn't grasp. He didn't have to cling on to. But He let it go. He wasn't jealous. And He left heaven to come to earth. This kind of love doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It doesn't keep score. It's a love that is possible only through God. And it is to be lived out in community with each other. It's a love. It's, it's a community that has to be practiced. Because we are, while we're redeemed people, we are not perfect people. And so we've got to come together. We've got to practice these things. Patience with each other. Kindness with each other. Not being jealous of each other. Not bragging. Not being prideful and arrogant. We've got to practice these things together. Not seeking our own means seeking for the other. You see, this is a community that must be practiced with grace and compassion, forgiveness and mercy. We talk about our mission of being love, love people. And, and I think, and, and even rightly so, to, to love people outside of the, this community of faith, to, to love those that are hurting and need, to love those that need Jesus Christ. To teach God's Word, to teach the Word and, and, and to, to study His Word, to value and to, to lift up His Word so that we would accept it as our authority for the life in which we live. To teach it and to live it out, to apply it. But then the last journey that we talk about as we live the journey of faith in Christ Jesus, we live this journey together. We share in this journey together. It means finding touch points. It means finding ways to invest in relationship with each other. Several of you, many of you, are, are participating in the Dinner 8 ministry. Gay and I got to go out with our group last night. And it was a, a wonderful time of enjoying some German food. Of, of having conversation, of learning about each other, learning about our families, of, of sharing our life together, of, of living the journey together. And, and while we were just getting to know each other, it begins to open doors to share our lives in deeper ways, in ways that match this kind of love as we look to move into the future. Are, are you looking for ways to engage each other in this kind of relationship? Or do you already have your community? You already have your small group. You don't need anybody else. You see, we must be a church that loves each other, that's willing to go beyond our, our own small groups that we feel comfortable with, to embrace each other across the generations. 
This is part of this conversation that, that we've been having as a church. And it's our prayer, it's my prayer as we move forward, that we would continue to converge and share our lives, share our love together through Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, convergence is only possible through love. You see, this is the key characteristic. This agape love that sets us apart from all others. May we practice it and live it out together.